Uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 5. We'll be looking at uh, verses 1 through 16 for the sermon this morning. Uh, I will, I'll read a little bit from uh, the last bit of chapter 4 just to provide some of the, the context. Uh, these you know, chapter divisions in our English Bibles are often, or well, all of them are later additions, and uh, most of them make sense, but this, this chapter division breaks up uh, the continuity of the story that we find at the end of chapter 4 leading into chapter 5. So I'll read verses 36 and 37 of chapter 4 in addition to the first 16 verses of chapter 5. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning? Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed his last, her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard, these th heard of these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord's help uh, for this passage? Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, your word is truth. There are some parts of your word that are significantly more challenging than others. 
And yet we always need your help. We always need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to illumine our hearts and minds, to help us to understand. And so we pray that you would pour out your Spirit among us today, that the same Spirit who inspired Luke as he recorded these significant events would open our eyes, give us understanding, help us to receive these words with faith and with love, to hide them in our hearts and to practice them in our lives. Bear fruit in us for your glory and help us to see Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. This passage is difficult. Uh, Many pastors uh, skip this passage in the preaching of Acts. Charles Spurgeon, who had 60 volumes of collected sermons from his ministry at the Metropolitan Baptist Church in London, had no sermon on this passage, which is surprising. (laughs) It's a challenging passage. Uh, But as we approach it, let's consider some of the context of the passage to help us understand what it's saying to us today. As we have worked through the book of Acts, we've begun to see how God was at work in the early church and how the early church faced challenges. They preached Christ, crucified and risen, and the preaching of Christ produced kind of a dual response. Many who heard the message of the gospel uh, in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus responded to that message with faith embraced it as their own, responded with repentance, and there was salvation. There's a response of salvation to the preaching of the gospel. At the same time, there was often a response of opposition, and we've begun to see that as the religious authorities responded to Peter and and John in particular, as they preached Christ in the vicinity of the temple Uh, The religious authorities tried to clamp down on that. Uh, They did not like the message that was being preached by these men. And so there was opposition from outside of the church. And we began to see how the churches responded to that opposition with prayer and humility, asking the Lord to give them boldness and courage to continue to bear witness to Jesus. And the Lord answering those prayers with boldness as well as with remarkable unity. And last week, as we looked at the unity of the church, we saw that one of the ways that unity was expressed was the way in which the church cared for one another. There were some who were in need, they were needy, and there were some who had means, they were needed. And many were were bringing their gifts, bringing uh, profit from selling land and other pieces of property, bringing it to the church so that it might be distributed Uh, to any as had need. And so they were committed to uh, providing for one another. As we come to this passage today in chapter 5, we begin to see no longer just a threat from the outside of the church, the religious authorities clamping down, threatening jail, and so forth. Now we see a threat to the unity of the church from within in the episode of Ananias and Sapphira. And as we look at this passage, uh, I want to at least warn us or caution us against at least one danger that we want to avoid when we come to a passage like this. One of the dangers we want to avoid is seeing Ananias and Sapphira as totally other than us, to view them as kind of false 
friends within the church, which in some ways they were, but many would say that Ananias and Sapphira were new believers who belonged to the church and in this episode experienced temptation, gave in to that temptation, and that their deaths were in some way a sanctifying judgment from God. My point in saying all that is we, we shouldn't approach texts like this in the Bible and say like the Pharisee uh, in the story that Jesus told, I'm so thankful that I'm not like those other people. Otherwise, we miss what the Holy Spirit is saying to us in this part of God's Word. So I hope we'll avoid that dan- danger as we look at this story. Before we kind of outline the application of the message this morning, I think it's helpful to clear up or to try to at least state clearly what the sin is for which Ananias and Sapphira are so swiftly judged. What is it that they did that brought this judgment from the Lord upon them? Very simply, in one word, their sin was hypocrisy. Their sin was hypocrisy. They planned to do one thing deliberately trying to make it look like another. What is it that they did? They saw Barnabas bring the proceeds from land that he sold and give it to the apostles. And Barnabas clearly was commended in the early church. Every time you see Barnabas, he's helping somebody. He was an important person, an encourager. Uh, they, They see Barnabas and others doing this act of selling things, bringing money to the apostles to be distributed as had need. And so they decide that they're going to do this as well, but they're going to do it in such a way that they get credit for more than what they actually did. And so we know that this was intentional. They conceived together in their hearts this task that they talked about it and planned it together. Their sin was lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God. So in other words, they were not sinning by only bringing part of what they made from the property. Uh, Peter Berry clearly says when it, when it was unsold, it was still yours. You could do with it what you wanted. And once you sold it, it was still under your authority. You could have, they could have very easily come and said, we sold this property for $100. Um, we're bringing $50 to give. And that would have been fine. There, there was no compulsion that they had to give everything. But there was a requirement that what they do be done in sincerity and in honesty and in faith before the Lord. So their sin was the sin of hypocrisy, of lying to the living God, deliberately acting in a way that appeared to be one thing while knowing that it was the opposite. I think it's important here to note perhaps the difference between hypocrisy on the one hand and what we might call inconsistency on on the other. You, you have probably heard, as, as I often hear, uh, many make the claim or, or state the, uh, the fact that the reason some people don't go to church or don't belong to a church is because the church is full of hypocrites. And why would I go and, and attach myself to a, a, a body of people that is full of hypocrites? They all say one thing and do another. I think to be sure, to be fair, there's some measure of truth in that that we have to acknowledge But often what's labeled as hypocrisy uh, is more accurately inconsistency. All of us uh, live lives 
that are not consistent with what we believe. That none of us lives into our beliefs 100% fully. Uh, we're like the road construction out here. We're all works in progress, and sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes it takes you 42 minutes to make a seven-minute drive to work. We're all a work in progress. And we who claim Jesus as Lord, we're, we're very often growing in fits and starts, sometimes in leaps and bounds, where God causes us to grow in wonderful ways, very fruitful. But other times, we take two steps forward and one step back. But that's distinct from hypocrisy and what we see here in Ananias and Sapphira. Husbands will often say they're going to take the garbage out and forget. That's inconsistent. It's not hypocrisy. But claiming that I took it out when I deliberately asked my son to do it, all the while planning to take credit for his action, that's hypocrisy. Make sense? Ananias and Sapphira are engaged in rank hypocrisy, and it's a matter of the heart, a premeditated, deliberate plan to lie, to seek God's approval, the applause of man, uh, seeking praise for themselves while um, deliberately deceiving in their actions. The church is often challenged with the same temptations that we see in Ananias and Sapphira, temptations from within. So I want to look at three of these temptations this morning as we uh, lay out the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, first, we see the temptation of appearance, the temptation of appearance. There is often a desire to put up a front, to appear to be one thing when we are, in fact, another. And we see that in Ananias and Sapphira. Presumably, they had seen others carrying out this same act. They see Barnabas, certainly, and they decide to do the same, but not to give all and to mislead others into thinking that they gave all. There is a temptation of appearance, wanting to look like we're doing good while we're not really doing good. One commentator says that wherever there is a zeal for good deeds, there is often a perversion of that same zeal. People will adopt the external form of the good deed while not having the generosity of heart that produced it in the first place. And you see that in Ananias and Sapphira. In verse 2, Luke tells us that they kept back some of the price. Now, this is, this is a specific word that's usually used for, like, embezzling, pilfering, right? Taking something that doesn't belong to you or deceiving somebody taking something while you make them think that you're giving everything. So it's clear Luke is telling us they kept it back and then they deceived others about it. Why? Because they wanted the appearance that they were doing something good without the cost of it. And I think there's something more as well that we should consider here, particularly as we see the contrast between Barnabas on the one hand and Ananias and Sapphira on the other. You might ask it this way. What motivated Barnabas to bring, to sell the land that he owned and then to bring the proceeds from it? I would argue that it's, it's two things closely connected. It was love and relationship. Clearly, Barnabas, Barnabas is motivated by the grace of God. He's responding to the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. But Barnabas, every time you see him, he is encouraging people. He has relationships. He is interested 
in the body of Christ to which he belongs. So much so that he knows that there are needs that he can meet with the gifts that the Lord has given him. And that's what motivated Barnabas to sell his land, to bring the proceeds, to entrust it to the apostles, to give to any as they had need. He was motivated by, motivated by love for God and love for other people. He wasn't seeking applause. He wasn't seeking commendation. He was acting out of the generosity of his heart. Ananias and Sapphira seemed to be very different, not motivated by love or relationship, but a desire for appearance, imitating actions without the commitment of the heart. There is the temptation there of appearance. Not only that, there's the temptation of applause, the temptation of applause, seeking the favor of men while disregarding the praise of God or the commendation, if you will, of God, not doing it out of a generosity of heart, but simply seeking other men to applaud you. Jesus speaks about this when he has his strong words for the Pharisees, saying to his disciples, when you, when you give alms, uh, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, uh, but rather give in secret because then your heavenly father will see what's done in secret uh, and he is pleased with that. But if you just do it for the applause of men, then you don't have God's favor upon you, but you get the applause of men. And so he talks about the Pharisees standing on the street corners, uh, bringing attention to themselves while they lifted up ornate prayers to God. They weren't really doing it for God they were doing it for the applause of men. It had the appearance of doing right without any of the sacrifice involved in it. Isn't this the world in which we live and the temptations that we all face, particularly as you think about uh, social media and the pressure of appearance, the pressure of applause? Uh, how many of you... If, if you engage in things like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all these different things, maybe you wake up in the morning content. This is my life. This is what God has given me. And then you pull out your device and you get online and you start seeing how happy everyone else is. You start seeing all the things that everybody else has. You start seeing all of the trips that everyone else is taking. You start seeing all of the lavish, ornate things that people have and are enjoying, and all of a sudden, what happens? In your heart, there is stirred up this discontent with what the Lord has given you. Why? Because of the appearance that's projected on a screen, a curated reality that does not always match what's actually there. And there's pressure. There's temptation that abounds with that. Temptation to be discontent with what the Lord has given us or even the temptation to put up the same appearance that we find on social media, to seek the same applause, the thumbs up, the likes, the happy comments, all of which are commending us. We live in a time when we all are seeking the applause of others rather than living or being encouraged rather to live for the glory of of the one whose opinion matters most, the living God. We seek applause rather than his favor. Let me give two illustrations about this, one uh, from Charles Spurgeon and another just from a funny uh, note card to lighten the load just a little bit, if, you, if you'll allow me. 
Charles Spurgeon tells a story about a kingdom and a peasant farmer who desired to show his love to the king of that kingdom. This peasant farmer had grown a carrot on his farm, and it was the largest carrot he had ever grown. And out of love for the king, he brought it into the court and came before the king's throne and said to the king, King, I have grown the largest carrot that I have ever grown, and I bring it to you in order to honor you and to thank you for being a good king. And the king received this large carrot from this peasant farmer and discerned the heart of the man that he was coming in sincerity and in gratitude for this king. And as the peasant was leaving, the the king said to him, I see that you are a wise steward with the land that you have given. I will give you more so that you can farm it. And gave him this great gift of land. As the farmer is going out, there was a nobleman in the court who noticed the king's generosity in response to a carrot and thought, oh, I can, I can uh, capitalize on this. So the next day, the nobleman, seeing what had happened the day before with the peasant, brought his finest horse to the king, brought the horse into the court and presented it to the king and said, oh, king, this is the finest horse that I have. I breed horses, and this is the best one, and I'm bringing it to you as a token of my affection for you so that you will be honored by this gift. And the king looked at the man, looked at the horse, said thank you, and that was it. The man was somewhat perplexed. How is it that this peasant brought a carrot and got land, and I brought the finest horse and got nothing except a word of thanks? The king saw that he was perplexed and said to him, The farmer brought the carrot to me. You brought the horse for yourself. Isn't that often how our obedience is motivated? What can I get out of it? Ananias and Sapphira were not bringing this gift to God. They were bringing it for themselves, for the applause of men. Several years ago, Carly bought a card for me at Trader Joe's because the cards there are cheap, and on the front of it, it has a... Uh, not because she's here. They're a dollar. They're great. They're a great deal. You understand what I mean. The front of the card has a man in the living room, his wife sitting on the couch, and he is standing in front of a vacuum cleaner, arms raised in triumph. And when you open the card up, it says, after vacuuming the living room, he waited for his medal. I don't know why she got me this card. Are we serving the Lord out of a desire to honor him, or are we doing it as we seek applause from men, or even seeking simply the appearance of obedience without the heart behind it? There is the temptation of appearance, the temptation of applause, and finally, uh, perhaps the most weighty of these temptations, the temptation of arrogance, the temptation of arrogance. I think it's worth noting that Sapphira and Ananias planned this ahead of time. This was a premeditated event. Peter notes this. He says, why have you conceived this in your heart? Why did you plan together to test the spirit of the Lord? They planned this. They had agreed on what they were going to do. They agreed on what they would say the price of the land was so that when Peter asked Sapphira, how much they sold the land for. She had an opportunity to confess, think how differently things would have gone, but she doesn't. She sticks to the plan. 
This was a premeditated act which aggravates the sin because when it's premeditated, you have time to think about the consequences. You have time to maybe convince somebody not to do something if you're both planning the same thing. Maybe one of you will think, you know, this probably isn't a good idea. Let's rethink this, but they didn't. What would lead them to that kind of action? I think in part it was an arrogance, a presumption. God won't know. God won't judge. There won't be consequences for the church if we act in this way together. This will just be our little secret and and no one will know. There's an arrogance to that. And that arrogance results in a judgment from God. Whether Ananias and Sapphira were believers or false believers, we don't know. The text doesn't say. Uh, I think it's worth, I I would think that they are believers uh, for various reasons, but it's not entirely clear. Either way, their death is clearly the result of God's judgment for their sin. It's meant to produce in us a sense of awe. It certainly had that effect in the church. There was great fear, mega fear among the church and all those who heard of what happened in response to the judgment of God. There was a temptation of arrogance that God would not know, that God would not judge their sin, which I think probably raises the question that many have as, you, as we read a passage like this. And that question goes something like this. Why doesn't God do this more often? Or maybe if we are honestly asking questions when we read a text like this, we might think, why did God do that in this situation? Seems severe. Seems like an overreaction. Seems like a harsh judgment. Seems arbitrary. Look who's delivering the judgment. It's Peter, that great denier of Jesus. And yet he remains alive. Ananias and Sapphira are dead. There are difficult questions that arise from a passage like this where God executes his judgment. But don't miss the point. God takes his holiness seriously, and he takes the holiness of his church seriously, and we should too. And the reality is, how many times does God need to execute swift judgment like this in order for us to get the point? Not often, I would say. Uzzah reaching out to touch the ark and being struck dead. Why? Because God said, don't touch the ark. And it's enough for Uzzah to be struck dead, even though everybody else perhaps carried the same presumption in their hearts. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, entering into the temple with strange fire after the Lord gave specific regulations one after another about how to approach him in worship. And they come with presumption. They come thinking they can make it up and do as they please. And God strikes them dead. And he tells Aaron and the other sons of Aaron, don't mourn. Don't weep for them. God's holiness was profaned by this. And God executed his judgment upon them. We're meant to look at this situation and be reminded not to give in to the same temptation that plagued them, the presumption that God won't know, that God won't judge sin. Kevin DeYoung, in his sermon on this passage, notes that the wages of sin is death, and God, because he is God, 
has the prerogative to call for those wages at any time that he pleases. And that the message to us is not to stand in judgment and to question God's justice here, but to ask the question, do I belong to the one who bore the wages of sin in my place? Have I put my trust in Jesus, who bore in his flesh God's condemnation for my sin, so that I can be freed not only from God's judgment, but also from the temptation to put up an appearance. If your righteousness is in Jesus Christ, then you don't have to pretend to be something you're not. He has done it all, and he has done it all for you. And there is no reason, there is no cause for the people who belong to Jesus to behave as if they are something they are not. We are freed from that because we have all the righteousness that we need in Jesus Christ so that we can humbly confess our sins. We can humbly confess our weakness and cling to the righteousness of Jesus for us and confess that when we are weak, he is strong and that we find grace in him by acknowledging that we are not what we ought to be, but he is all that we, that we need. He is all that we ought to be, and he is that for you. It also frees you from the temptation of applause. The same love with which the Father loves the Son has been given to you if you belong to Jesus. The love of the Father is yours and can never be taken away because Jesus holds you in his hand. The Father has given you to him. If you have faith in Jesus, if you're united to him, then all of the Father's love is yours. It does not increase with your obedience. It does not diminish with your disobedience because your righteousness is in Jesus, with whom the Father is perfectly pleased at all times. The Father's love is yours because of Christ, and you don't need to seek the applause of others. You have the loving applause of a father who has given you his own son. It also frees us from the temptation to arrogance, to presume that God will not know our sin or that God will not judge our sin. The judgment that God laid out on Ananias and Sapphira was in some ways a precursor of his final judgment at the end of days, a judgment before which all people will stand. And there will be a great division at that point between those who have put their faith in Jesus so that God's judgment on him counts for you, and you're not going to be condemned because he was condemned in your place. And those who have not put their faith in Christ and who will bear themselves the judgment that they deserve for their own sin. The dividing line between those two groups is what you have done with Jesus. Have you seen that at the cross of Jesus, God has poured out his judgment for sin as a way of bringing us out of judgment and into mercy and grace and giving us an eternal hope that cannot be broken because Jesus has redeemed us by his own blood and life. God will judge sin. It may not happen at this worship service. (laughs) Thanks be to God. He's merciful. He doesn't strike us down every time we lie, every time we're hypocritical. He's merciful. But there is coming a day when that precursor of judgment shown to Ananias and Sapphira will be unleashed in an unbridled way. And Scripture tells us that 
Men will run and hide and cry out for the rocks to fall upon them at the great day of God's judgment. But there is a rescue now in Jesus Christ that we can fly to him by faith, put our trust in him, and no longer fear the judgment of God, nor presume that he will not judge, but find refuge and safety in Jesus Christ, covering us with his righteousness, cleansing us with his blood, and by all that he has done for us, making us acceptable before the Father, all of grace given and received as a gift. Let us look to Jesus as the way out of these temptations. We must say as we close this sermon and point to the final part of this chapter, how there's kind of a mixed response to all of these things among the people. And yet in spite of these internal challenges, the Lord continues to bless his church. Uh, In verses 12 through 16, we see that there's some who keep their distance. They don't associate with the church. There's probably some level of fear, some level of awe and wonder. There's judgment at the church. The apostles are continuing to perform signs and wonders as testimony that this is God at work. There's some fear on their part. And yet at the same time, the Lord is continuing to add to their number men and women who believed in the Lord. They are brought into his church. The question for us is, how do we continue, how do we respond, rather, to this episode in the life of the church? And as we come to the Lord's table in a moment, I would encourage you to consider two points of application and how we ought to respond to this. One, uh, this passage very clearly ought to motivate us to humble self-examination, to humble self-examination. As we see Ananias and Sapphira, we see the motivations in many ways of their hearts laid out here as, as, as Peter exposed them uh, by the power of God's Spirit, uh, we ought to turn that same microscope on our own hearts and consider ways that we are living in this temptation of appearance, this temptation of applause, and perhaps even the temptation of arrogance to presume upon God's judgment. Take time to examine yourself, to think about the intentions of your heart and the actions and habits that are shaping your life. Ananias and Sapphira had likely developed certain patterns of deceit that lingered and came to a head in this episode. But God is gracious. God gives us opportunities. Every week as we hear the word, word of God preached, and then particularly as we come to the Lord's table, he gives us opportunities to examine our hearts, to examine ways that we sin, areas where we need the grace of repentance. Not just look around at others, but to look at ourselves, confess, repent, and be changed. It's an opportunity for humble self-examination. It's also an opportunity for ongoing repentance and faith. How do we guard our hearts from these temptations of spiritual deceit that we see in Ananias and Sapphira? We recognize our own tendencies to these temptations, to puff up, to exaggerate, to seek the applause of men rather than the applause or favor of the living God, to confess these things, to turn from them, and to embrace the whole Christ as he has offered to us in the gospel. His life for you, his righteousness to cover your sin, his blood shed 
for the forgiveness of your sins and the security that you have in Jesus Christ as you are united to him by faith. Let us examine ourselves and as we do, walk in continued repentance and faith. And in so doing, may we be careful to give all glory to God. Would you pray with me?